0: Here's the name of the sermon today. Move that stone, okay? That's what we're calling it. <laughs> and the reason we did that exercise that we just did was to accentuate the importance that we have here at COV, that, not, that we're not here to just hear the word and so, according to James, deceive ourselves, or if you look at the Greek, miscalculate our faith. We know that if we preach a good sermon, we know that if we teach the word of God but it doesn't affect the way that you live, all it does is maybe make you a little bit smarter, then that's really not what the word of God does in his people, and so we wanna give you the opportunity to apply what you're learning. So as we write these messages, myself and others, who teach on Sundays, we're, we're writing these messages with the hope that you'd put them into practice in your community group, you would put them into practice in your life, you would have this community to help you do these things. You and I have the opportunity Today, as we study God's Word, to know Christ, to show Christ off, and to grow into Christ-likeness by obeying God at His Word for the right reasons. So I share all of that as we jump into this time of God's Word that we would not take this for granted. We get to corporately learn together. We get to corporately worship together. Worship the understanding of who God is, to worship him, and to walk through the truth of God's word which is provided us to us through the canonized inherent truth of the word as it was originally written. So we've been studying John chapter 11, and some of you guys really like it when I give you an outline, which I'm not an outline person. I'm kind of a, you know, that's the word of God for me. But I'm gonna give you my one point All right, here's my one point. We're going to unpack this point, the entire sermon. By the grace of God, the works of God reveal the glory of God in the Son of God. Guess who we're going to talk about today? God. By the grace of God, the works of God reveal the glory of God in the Son of God. So we're studying John chapter 11, the story known as Lazarus being raised from the dead, and last week we unpacked Jesus coming to the place where Mary and Martha were grieving as word was sent to Jesus because their brother had passed away. Today we're going to study what actually happened as Jesus got to the tomb and the power of what happens when his word is exercised. We finished last week in the middle of Jesus having some pretty strong emotions that we just started to talk about, and there were a lot of reasons Jesus could be having the feels, if you will. His dear friend Lazarus was dead. His dear friends Martha and Mary were grieving the loss of their brother. His motivations and actions were being questioned. Sin had come into the world and produced death in a very real, obvious situation when it came to his friend Lazarus. And even though his dear friends were grieving and wailing over the loss of their brother, they were doing it like pagans who had no hope in the resurrection. So with all of those possibilities of why he had these strong emotions, which one is it? Well, let's look. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come along with her, Mary, also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. So I think a lot of times, even when we read the word of God out loud, we read into tone. We hear things the way we want to hear them. We read the story with the assumption that Jesus is incredibly compassionate, and that's why he raises Lazarus from the dead. But you need to look at the word and remember that the word interprets the word. Scripture interprets scripture. I want you to see something that may be telling in these words that were just used. John uses a word here, or the last sentence, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and he's gonna use terms that are used in other parts of scripture. Deeply moved in spirit, it's used again in verse 38, we'll get to that, where it is used in other places in scripture, not in the context of compassion, but in rebuke or a warning. It's also used in Matthew chapter 9, verse 30. I'm going to read the passage where it is, and if we move to that slide, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, in verse 30, we're going to see the same term. So here we go. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Here, Jesus is going to use the same term that we just saw, where it says, Jesus warned them sternly. And he says, see that no one knows about this. But of course, they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. This term means to feel strongly, which Jesus felt as he told these two blind men to not go tell everyone that he healed them. But they did. He feels strongly. He's deeply moved. And then in Mark chapter 1, we see it again. It's starting in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand. He touched the man. I am willing. He said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Verse 43. Jesus sent him away at once with... Same term, strong feelings, with a strong warning. Verse 44, see that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Guess what they did? Instead, they went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him From everywhere. This term's used again. It was used one other place that we've talked about before at the end of this passage in Mark chapter 14. Here's another situation. Verse 1 Now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and here's the term again, they rebuked her harshly. So we have this term deeply moved. This is not used for compassion but rebuke three other times in Scripture, and we also have this term, not just that he was deeply moved, but he was troubled, and troubled as we will see, it means shaken or agitated. In John chapter 5, verse 6 through 7, which we studied years ago, when Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is, here's troubled, stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. See, troubled means agitated, it means stirred, as in these waters. And this term again, and we're going to get to the point in just a second, it was all, also it's used in John 14, which we'll study in the future. Where Jesus says this in John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be, what's that word? Troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Hear me, these terms are not a positive emotion. Jesus was shaken, he was upset, he was disturbed. And I bring all of that up Because even though I know that Jesus was upset about his friend's death, we can't, hear me, superimpose the way we respond to things onto the master of the universe who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and the God of the universe when he sees the bigger picture. Because we read this with a tone that he was just compassionate because his friend died. But love let his friend die. I would contend that these words are used because Jesus was agitated at the sin of the world that has brought death to his creation, and that his being stirred up was not because his friend lay dead, but because the way that Mary, Martha, and the Jews were grieving, they were acting as if death has final say. But if you've read ahead, it doesn't. Hallelujah. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. He came to reign as the ruler of the kingdom. And even though we picture rulers as fighters and Jesus as a pacifist, we must acknowledge that Jesus came to defeat death once and for all. Not by stopping Adam and Eve in the garden, but by giving his life as the ransom payment for those of us who have trusted him. Let's look at Matthew 20, verse 28 just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why such a big emphasis on this prior portion of Scripture? Because really, we all know the real point of this is the resurrection of Lazarus. That's the point of this passage, this entire chapter. It's pointing to a resurrection, but here's what I would tell you, that the resurrection of Lazarus is just a precursor to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because motivations, hear me, as we're looking at these words, as we see that Jesus was agitated, we have to understand that motivations matter. Did you guys know that? We don't do a religious come and just do whatever you want to do. Even when you do good things, we want to look to why you're doing the things that you're doing because motivation matters. And when you look at God, we often assume a lot of things. We assume he's more like us then we ought to. Real talk, I'm going to start preaching. You ready? God is about God. And if that puts you off, know that that puts off people that don't have ears to hear. God is about God. God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. His will is best. His plan is perfect. He created the heavens and the earth, and hear me, glory is due Him, not His creation, but the Creator. And for some reason, we have a pretty high view of ourselves while either misrepresenting God or making the Bible about us. I cannot tell you how important it is for you and I to realize that God is about his glory rather than our happiness. Because if his plan is for us to get glory, God isn't God. He's a celestial butler who is made, who we have made in our image. Jesus came so that dead people would be made alive. We watched the representation of that on the video as we started the service. The baptisms don't save any of these people. The baptisms are the understanding and the proclamation that outwardly they are claiming what they believe inwardly, that Jesus is risen, and they're identifying with his resurrection. But Jesus came to make dead people alive, but that wasn't because heaven wouldn't be heaven if you or I weren't in there. Jesus came to reign and rule over death, so we wanted a choice, and here's the thing. When given a choice, you and I choose death every single time. It is only when God intervenes that we can start to trust him and know him. Now, that was some bad news, and some of you may have turned off. You're like, oh, he's preaching, blah, blah, blah. Okay, hear me. That's the bad news, but there is some really good news, that if we've gotten over ourselves and bowed down to his lordship, we are included in Christ. We are on, hear me, the winning team. We get the Super Bowl ring. But he carried us. We didn't even do anything. It was all him, and that is why he is worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. So is Jesus going to perform a miracle as we're about to read? Absolutely. Does he love Lazarus? absolutely, but he does what he does so that the glory of God may be revealed according to verse four, and this was done that the glory of God may be put on display through the sun. Here we go, verse 34. He says, "'Where have you laid him?' he asked. "'Come and see, Lord,' they replied." Jesus, after being troubled, asks where they lay him. He knows. Jesus knows all things. He's not like, oh, I know what's happening in outer space right now, but where's Lazarus? No, he knows. But he's essentially asking them to take him to the grave. Where many of the Jews had followed Mary would also follow him to see this miracle that's about to take place. Now, if any of you are struggling with memorizing Scripture, I'm going to really help you out, all right? Here's a verse, verse 35. Jesus wept. Say it back to me. Jesus wept. You've all memorized scripture. Congratulations. <laughs> this is the shortest verse in all of the Bible, and even though it's the shortest verse in all of the Bible, we should not just gloss over what is said. Jesus wept. This was not the same crying that they were talking about earlier on with the Jews where they were wailing or sobbing. This was more of an outburst. What most theologians would agree upon is that the emotions, all of them possibly, that are happening at this time, the loss of Jesus' friend Lazarus, the grieving of Lazarus' sisters, the Jews and the sisters grieving like pagans, death and how it has dominion over those who are without faith that Jesus is the Christ, the fact that Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, all of that stuff, all of those emotions are creeping up and coming at Jesus all at the same time, and Jesus wept I know last week and even as you guys watched the video of the baptisms I know at the end of the video that my eyes started to sweat when my oldest daughter got baptized (laughs) and witnessing each of those people last week be baptized and knowing them personally, spending time with each of them, it was such a beautiful representation of God's work in their lives but when Reagan came out of the water hear me, I lost it when Reagan came out of the water, I lost it. I wept because the emotion of behind seeing my oldest daughter committed to Christ is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And that was the overflow of the emotion that I was feeling. That is what Jesus did, not under the same circumstances or even via the same emotion, but to weep was the overflow of the experience. Verse 36, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. What we're about to see is two opposing views of Christ and how his reaction of weeping was received. For some, they believed Jesus was weeping and this emotional outcry was because of his love for Lazarus. They saw his reaction as one who missed his friend, one who had deep sorrow because of his friend's death, which was absolutely true, but Jesus still knew what he was about to do. Verse 37, but some of them said, Could not he open the eyes of a blind man? Sorry, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Think about how this is being understood. Once again, his intentions are being called into question. They were willing to acknowledge the miracle of the blind man being healed, and yet they used it against him. Wow. Isn't this a great example of how you and I tend to question God when things don't happen the exact way we want them to? God, you could do this, but why didn't you do this? You saved me, but why is it hard? And I'll tell you the answer to why God doesn't come through the way we want him to all the time, because Jesus gives a drop-the-mic statement in verse 4. John eleven four. this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Be honest. I'm not going to call you out. Be honest. Have you ever said everything happens for a reason? Have you ever said that? Okay, a few of you are honest and a lot of you aren't. Okay, cool. Jesus died for that sin too. Everything happens for a reason is a good theology if you are interpreting this verse, but only if you are interpreting this verse. If you look at the good and bad opportunities as opportunities for God to get glory, everything, everything happening for a reason makes a ton of sense, but that doesn't always mean that you're going to see the glory of God in this life. Or understand or even trust in the hurt of what you're going through. That the glory of God being revealed is the reason, but I'd encourage you, hear me, to default to the reasons things happen is so that the glory of God may be put on display. We don't need to think about karma because glory trumps karma every time. Verse 38 Jesus, once more deeply moved, there it is, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Jesus was deeply moved. It was that word we saw earlier. He was agitated. My guess was that he was agitated by the representation of death that the tomb presented, that death was even present, angered Jesus because he came to destroy it. He was moved because his friend was dead. He laid motionless, Lazarus did, because sin had entered into the world. Lazarus' sister sobbed and welled, forgetting about hope. And Jesus' motives were questioned because he hadn't come to their home sooner. He had all of these emotions swirling around at this very moment. And in this context, they didn't have coffins like we have. They had caves that had shelves in them, and bodies would be wrapped in linens and put on the shelf, and they would decompose. And to keep grave robbers away, to keep the smell from going outside of the cave, a large stone would be placed and rolled in front of the opening. So John 11, verse 39, the first half, the name of the sermon, take away the stone, he said move that stone. That's move that bus. Never mind. Take away the stone, he said. And Jesus commands those around to move the stone. Jesus could have said, move, and the stone would have moved. But he told people to move the stone. And here was Martha's response in the second half of the verse. But Lord, (laughs) said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Every once in a while, King James gets it even better. You ready? In King James chapter 11, verse 39, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) Martha understood that her brother had been decomposing. That's so messed up to be laughing at this. Decomposing for a few days. And the idea that Jesus would go in and do something in her mind probably did not equate to resurrection because he had been decomposing. He smelled terrible. He was essentially a zombie at this moment without life. Because of her worry about disturbing the grave site for the smell, she tried to stop Jesus from doing anything. Verse 40, Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I love this. He's pointing back to what he implied with his disciples in verse 4, that the sickness would glorify God, and that it would reveal the glory of God through the Son of God. And Jesus says this in verse 4 to his disciples, but not to Mary. And I'd contend that there were probably more discussions with Martha and Mary about glory that John did not include in this interaction because he doesn't have to. Jesus says this, if you look at this verse, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus says this because faith opens our eyes. That we may be able to see the power of God shining through his works and those who have eyes to see What things that the world may consider coincidences, and sometimes they are, or random, sometimes those are things where God just reveals himself blatantly for those who have the faith to trust and obey him. One thing I think happens more often than not is individuals who have no idea who Jesus is They have a cultural understanding of the Bible. They don't know what it says in the context in which it is said, and yet they attempt to speak on God's behalf. You ever had someone like this in your life? They attempt to make people act certain ways by quoting scripture or themes that they assume are in scripture. I hear from many of you often that someone said you weren't being Christian enough or telling you that you're supposed to act a certain way because you claim to have a faith, or that you, what you believe is foolish. It is foolish to those who cannot see. Do not have faith, and do not, through, the God, through God's grace, experience God's love and his forgiveness. It looks like foolishness to the world. The fact that you guys would come here on a Sunday morning when there are a lot of good football games on, that looks like foolishness to the world. So here's, here's an application. Please don't listen to people without a committed faith to Jesus Christ that you want to emulate their Christian belief when they talk about God. Don't listen to them. Go to the word. Talk to people within the church who are possibly leaders or people you've watched faithfully submit to Jesus Christ and ask their opinion. Ask them to point you to the word. So Jesus is about to perform a miracle in a context that is widely public, in a place where many doubt that he is who he says that he is, two miles away from a place where a bunch of people were that want to kill him. And he's about to perform this miracle for a friend he cares deeply for, sisters who have been distraught since the loss of their brother. And Jesus, hear me, is about to reveal the power of God, the power of the natural laws that God is over of this world. The glory of God put on display by the works of God in this natural world for all who would believe. So here we go. Here's what happens. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you Sent me. Oh, the grace in this verse. Jesus has this intimate exchange. With the Father, the one he knows intimately, the one he knows personally, the one who before the foundation of the earth was created, Jesus and the Father were in perfect relationship with the Holy Spirit. Triune God have always existed, one God in three persons. And there is this time of prayer where Jesus speaks to the Father, and it's recorded in the book of John. And Jesus didn't, in this moment, pray inwardly, he didn't just think his prayer, but spoke it out loud not for the Father's benefit, but for ours. Jesus looks to heaven, not because that's the only place where God is. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in a worshipful stance, he looks to heaven as to symbolize his submission to the Father as the Father is above him. And Jesus begins with thankfulness. Before asking for anything, he thanks the Father which could be concluded that he has already prayed inwardly to the Father, asking that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. But he's speaking to the Father. He's thanking him for his goodness. But this verbal prayer that is recorded in Scripture was recorded for the benefit of the hearers. So they would know that this was done by the power of the Father, in which Jesus makes abundantly clear that even though he is God, he is submitted to God because of love. See, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, modeled being a servant of God. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. God is, Jesus is God with skin. But there is a true mystery here. Not why would Jesus do this, why would God do this, because he loved us. That's not the mystery. But the mystery is how impossible it is for any of us to understand the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life. Not only did he not do anything wrong, he did everything right by absolutely obeying the Father his entire worldly life. And yet Jesus did this. He lived a perfect life, and that doesn't mean he looked like a good Christian, as people outside the church would say you're supposed to look. This didn't mean just by abstaining from things that the world would say are bad, but by bringing heaven here to earth, by never sinning, by doing nothing against the the law in the Old Testament, While doing everything he came to do, fully submitted to the Father and his will. That's one of the reasons we praise Jesus. Not just because we see pictures of him or because he hung on a cross, but he lived the perfect life we could not. Jesus kept the law so that we could be justified. That we would not be justified by the law because we break the law constantly, but that we would be justified by him by trusting him, not by attempting to earn God's love, but by receiving his love through Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross and triumphant resurrection from the dead. Just be reminded, you will never not hear the gospel here on a Sunday. So Jesus, thanks to the Father for always hearing For providing Jesus was what he asked in the resurrection of Lazarus. But all of this was said out loud so that people could believe that the power of this miracle came from God, who Jesus is the son of and the servant of, and he is God with skin. So here's what happened. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. After praying, Jesus speak speaks with this loud voice not to make it as if the dead could hear him because of the decibel because what can you do when you're dead nothing but in the authoritative tone that god resurrects lazarus and the voice that he hears will be of the Son speaking and lazarus is wrapped in cloths and he hears the voice and he goes towards it jesus didn't place his hands on lazarus he didn't anoint him with oil He didn't scream and yell. He didn't beg God or wail. He literally, by his word, told Lazarus what to do, and Lazarus obeyed, not because he chose to, but because God intervened and resurrected Lazarus to life through his power. What a wonderful expression of the fact that God at his word gives life. He gave it to Lazarus through his authoritative word, and we too have the opportunity to have life, not from trying really hard or trying to clean ourselves up or to do enough good to outweigh the bad, but by hearing God's voice and trusting him at his word and repenting, changing direction, saying, I don't want to live this life of sin anymore. I want to change direction. I want to follow Jesus and what he's done for me, but by hearing God's voice, trusting him at his word, repenting by and because of the faith that the Lord provides through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Verse 44. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The gospel writer John was very careful and specific to explain that Lazarus came out of the tomb the same way he was placed in the tomb, and linens were wrapped around his feet, wrapped around his, whoop, that's not my feet, his, his hands and wrapped around his feet and a cloth around his face, and Jesus says to the Jews, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Why does he say this? Commentators suggest that this was so that the Jews who were generally disbelieving could have firsthand knowledge of this miracle by actually touching the man who was once dead and by taking off the grave clothes and seeing that he was resurrected from the dead. Verse 45, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and believed in him. Next week, we will conclude the story and the reaction of the Jews that were not all like this last verse. In fact, there's other people that didn't want this miracle to take place and felt like they had to do something about it. But I'd like you to notice that this miracle produced faith in people. They were witnesses of this miracle, and they saw the glory of God because they understood it was God who did this. Their eyes were open, they had eyes to see, they had ears to hear that this was done so that they could see the glory of God revealed in the works of God through the Son of God. So let me say it one more time, by the grace of God, the works of God reveal the glory of God in the Son of God. And this miracle produced fruit. It was this cosmic intervention, it was supernatural, but it was believable for those who witnessed it and experienced it, but as we'll see next week, even some that saw this did not believe. And their heart was so hardened to the truth, not because they hadn't heard it, but because they hadn't obeyed it. That they came up not with natural conclusions to how this happened, but to contemn Jesus for claiming that he is God even though his works backed up his claim. What I'm about to say to you may not be for you. What I'm about to say to you is those who through the grace of God have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And I don't know anyone's heart in this room, but I need you to know today that not all of you have ears to hear. I know that some just won't, they don't, they can't get that Jesus is literally God incarnate. You could personally see Lazarus come out of the grave in real time and your heart is so hardened to God. If you attend church, if you're watching this on YouTube, the claims of Christ are too much for you. The evidence is not something you can open-mindedly look at because your conclusion, conclusion before any of the facts is that God can't be real. So for those of you that are that, what I'm about to say is not for you. But for those of us who have seen the glory of God, hear me. Jesus is the provider, the maintainer, the producer, the procurer, and the point of our faith. It's all because of him. What you believe is all because you, by the grace of God, can understand the works of God, that they reveal the glory of God through the Son of God. And this is not a work of yourself or something that you can take credit for, but through the merciful act of God's grace to you. In John chapter 1, 19 through 13, it says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So I want to ask you, church, I want to ask you personally, imagine you and I just hanging out, just the two of us. Do you believe? Do you in your heart trust that Jesus is who he says that he is? Do you believe that Jesus had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead? Do you believe that this was the precursor to his own resurrection? Do you believe that God has the power to make dead things alive? Because if you don't, you don't know him. And I'm here to testify that I was once dead, but now I'm alive. We're going to end with Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. For the word of God is alive and active. This word is alive and active. That doesn't mean you just read it, but you put it into practice and it changes you. For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize empathize with our weakness but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence (laughs) so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need this is the Jesus that we profess This is the Jesus who lived the life we couldn't and died the death we should have and physically rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and one day is coming back and we shouldn't look busy. We should make it about Jesus and point people to who he is. This is the Jesus that we trust. This is the Jesus that we believe as is alive today as he was before he went to the cross. Church, I pray that we as a community